Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're studying the book of Romans, and uh, we're going to stick with that series. I I know it's Easter, so you expect something on the resurrection. Well, as it turns out, Romans 4 talks about the resurrection. So in the good providence of God, uh, the dates lined up. But the point of, of Romans 4 is about how sinners can be made right with God, how the ungodly can be in right relationship to God. That's a great theme because all of us are ungodly, all of us are sinners, and all of us can be made right with God. That's the message today. It is good news. And so let's pray that God would bless the reading of His Word and the good news to our souls. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you bless the reading of your Word this morning? And then as we reflect upon it for a few minutes, we pray that you would take your words and and, and cause them to penetrate our hearts. That you would make this good news for us uh, the news that inspires and and by your Spirit gives us faith and repentance and that we would belong to Christ forever. We pray that you would strengthen your church, that you would nourish our faith, that you would exalt the Lord Jesus and lift Him up, that we might see how great He is and come to Him with our whole being. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's Word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's adherents of the law, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of Faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, 
that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he, was, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. It is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. A man was hiking alone, took a misstep and slipped off the edge of a cliff and caught himself hanging from the branch like the cliches. He, was, he could see that he was not going to be able to climb back up and he knew that to fall would be certain death. And so in desperation he cried out, Is anyone there? To his surprise a voice rang and it seemed to come from everywhere. I am here. I am the Lord. Do you believe in me? The man said, I do believe in you. He said, Well... The Lord says to him, Then let go of the branch and I will save you. After a pause, he looks down. Another pause. And then he cries out, Is there anyone else there? <laughs> it's a silly story. But it actually really captures the condition of, of the human soul according to the book of Romans, really according to the whole Bible. It is that we've gotten ourselves into a situation, a predicament, so desperate that we have no hope of getting ourselves out of it. And God says, I will save you. And we say, is there any other way? At the end of the day, we all, the predicament that we are in, is that we are under the wrath of God by nature. We are condemned and we deserve it. Now, I can hear the objection that comes to that. I know we've all sinned. We all admit it. We, we, we've sinned. None of us are perfect. But do we really deserve condemnation? The wrath of God? I mean, most of us feel like we're pretty decent neighbors. We, we all feel like we're, you know, decent people, more or less. Uh, if, if you don't, you're, you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. If you feel like that, we're also glad you're here. But the Scriptures tell us that everyone falls under the condemnation of God because everyone shares a common commitment of heart that's against God. It began way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam committed the first sin and God came and the first thing he did was run away. And it's been the thing that we do in all of life. Some people do it the traditional way. They run away from God by living lives of immorality and pleasure-seeking and self-seeking. And you can spot it in an instant. The person who says, I'm running from God. I have no interest in Him. I don't want Him to be part of my life. And he, he lives in just abject immorality. But there's the other way that we do it too, which is by living decent moral lives. Or even by doing religious duties. Because what we're really doing is we're saying, okay, I'm moral enough and I want God to notice. Hey, God, look, I'm doing it fine on my own. Thank you. I'm religious enough and I do enough things that you should be happy with this. 
We're, we're like the guy hanging from the tree, and we hear God say, let go, and I will save you. And we say, no, I think I can climb, even if we can't. At, at the end of the day, we all share this commitment that says, I don't want to have to trust God. I want to do it myself. I want to do enough. Paul describes what that looks like in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You see, that's where we all like to be. I want to be good enough that I've done some things that now I give them to God and say, give me what I'm due. I want paid for my work. And so I bring my best stuff to him and say, now pay me back in blessing. Pay me back in your favor. Pay me back with heaven and, and you know, strength to deal with things in this life. Pay me back. I want God in my debt. You see, that's part of our heart. I want to be in a contract with God where we're peers. I'll do my part. You pay me. It's an employee-employer relationship that we want. The problem is, it's never going to work. Think about the insult that it actually is to God to say, I want to put you in my debt. I want you to pay me and owe me what I deserve, and I think I deserve really good things. Our righteousness, our works will never uh, do enough. We're all saying, I want to live apart from you. I just want you to pay my way. Right? And so that's why we're all under the condemnation of God, under His wrath. But God says, I'll make another way. I will make a way in which though you have been a sinner, I will make you righteous in my sight. Here's what I will do. I will provide a substitute, one who will live out all the demands I have made on your behalf in Jesus. He will obey me fully. He will seek me every day of his life. He will follow me in, in complete, profound, to the depths of his heart worship. He will have a zeal for me and for my house. He will do everything that I demand. And instead of just accepting that, I will take that obedience and His righteousness and I will count it to you. He says in verse 5 that faith is counted as righteousness. Or verse 6, the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. It's an accounting term. If you think of it, God is saying, I'm going to put in your assets column infinite righteousness. Infinite uh, righteousness before me. So that God looks on you and what he sees from his vantage point as the judge is Christ's obedience in your credits, in your column. And then, it's not just that he fills you with all his demands, but he looks in your debt column and he says, I won't count what's there. Verse 6, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so he says, I won't count that. But God is just. He doesn't just say, I'll ignore it. He takes your debts and he puts them on Jesus and Jesus endures what you owe. He satisfies and fulfills the wrath of God on the cross. And so your debt is completely paid. And so God looks at your account and he says, I see you've met all my demands. And 
You owe me nothing. And so God is completely and utterly satisfied with us. That's, that's the message that he's getting at here. But how does that work? How do we get the, the righteousness counted to us? How do we get our debts counted to Christ and away from us, not counted against us? How does it happen? How does stuff work? You know, the, the TV show or the book that says, here's how stuff in the world works, and you always read it, and you go, oh, I had no idea. I remember as a child when, when that really caught me. I went to the dinner bell regularly with my grandfather. Dinner bell's kind of like the Cracker Barrel knockoff. I guess I didn't want to pay the franchise fee or something. But it had the restaurant, had the country store, all the same stuff. And we would mill around waiting on a table. And my favorite thing in the whole store was the two horseshoes with the chain and the ring around it. You seen it? I hope so. And I would, you know, the, the goal was to get the ring off. And it was too small to just slide over the horseshoes. And so you had to know the trick. And here's what someone would do. They would look at it. They would kind of spin around, mess with their fingers, and come back, and it was separate. And I'm like, how did you do that? This was children. This was before YouTube, when you could get step-by-step instructions. And so I had to live in ignorance for years. How does it work? How do you solve the problem? Get the ring off the horseshoes. How do you, how do you solve the problem of of the fact that God says, I, I want you to be completely righteous and I'm a sinner. Uh, Martin Luther said it this way. He, was, he used scholar language in Latin. Here's the Latin phrase. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, just or righteous and a sinner. I continue on in my sins. I continue on in my temptations. I continue on in my failings. That's my experience today but I'm also righteous before God at the same time. How does that work? Well, that's what Paul wants you to see. How does that work? He tells you in verse 4, sorry, verse 5, and to the one who does not work. You see, it is not by works. It is not because you become a better obeyer of the law that now God goes, oh, I'm a little satisfied with you. You've earned enough credit with me that now I'll give you the rest. It is not the one who works. Now, this flies in the face of what most everybody today, especially in America, thinks about religion. It may be in the world. Here's what we think, most of us. Most of Americans think this about religion All religions say basically the same thing. God wants you to be decent, to love your neighbor, to treat people as you want to be treated. And if you do that well enough, God will accept you. That's the going religion. And when, say, a Christian comes along and says, Jesus Christ is the only way to God, here is what people hear. They hear Jesus' ways, Jesus' teachings, Jesus somehow will make you a better neighbor. It will make you more loving than anybody else will. And then they look at these other religions that produce decent people who seem to like their neighbors and do okay and and often measure up against people who, who profess to be Christians 
and, and, and seem better. And they go, I don't buy that. It makes you sound arrogant. Because what they think you're saying is, if you listen to me talk about Jesus, you'll become the best kind of person. But Christianity says something altogether different. It says that you become righteous not by works. In fact, it's bolder than that. And to the one who does not work. The person has stopped doing these works to please God. Is that what he means? Does he mean that you're supposed to stop doing good works and then you can be justified? Then you can become righteous? Abraham is his example. Let's go back and take a look. Abraham was a man who was told by God, leave your country and leave your home and go to a land I will show you and I will give you blessings. And so he does. And in, in chapter 15 of Genesis, he's there and he's anticipating uh, you know, these promises somewhat and God reminds, them of, reminds Abraham of his promises. He says, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to give you all the land that you see. I will be your shield and your protector, and I will give you myself. And then God, looking into Abraham's heart, sees what Abraham takes from those promises, and he, he identifies it for us. Abraham believed God's promises, and God counted him righteous. That is to say that Abraham hadn't done anything according to the law. He hadn't done anything that God had really commanded and, and, and set for all people. He had not been a decent person. And if you want to you know, go back and look, Abraham is the guy who lies twice, puts his wife in danger to save his own skin. Is that how you want your sons to turn out? Abraham isn't a great guy. But he's made righteous before God because he believes. You see, he began to doubt that he could ever work enough to make God happy with him. And so he stopped trusting his good works. Now, did he do good works? Yes, he worshipped. He told his children about God. He told others in Canaan about the Lord. He went and rescued Lot. He did good things. It isn't saying stop doing good things. It's saying stop doing good things in order to get God to like you. Stop going to church because you think it will make God start giving you blessings. Stop giving your money away because you think it will make God indebted to you. Stop doing those things in order to get God to accept you. That's what it means. We stop the striving and he points it out like this. In chapter 15, God says, Abraham, you're righteous. In chapter 17, he gives him his first law, law of circumcision. I want you to circumcise every man in your house, including yourself. And, and that's to be an ongoing thing. Any man born to your house will be circumcised from now on. It was the first law for the believing people. And it was designed to be something of a reminder, a powerful one, no doubt. The way a wedding ring says, I'm in a relationship with my spouse. Circumcision was saying, I'm in a relationship with God. And it was to be a constant, intimate, bloody reminder of what it took to be in a relationship to God. That you had to have your sin cut away. 
that a bloody sacrifice was needed, but you were in it forever, as long as you went. That's what that circumcision said to all who were circumcised. You see, God gave him this law, but he was righteous before the law. And, and, and God is saying the same thing to you. You don't go to the law and say, give me enough instructions so that I can become righteous before you. God says, I'll make you righteous and then we can talk about law later. I'll make you righteous and then we'll work on the rest. Stop working to get God to like you. What do you do? And to the one, verse 5, who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's trust. The word is, to, is faith or to believe. And we use those interchangeably, but we've sort of uh, robbed the word belief of its power. Here's how. We use the word belief like this. I believe my wife is at the store. And you understand what I say. What I mean when I say that is, I, I, she told me she was going to the store, but she might have gone somewhere else or she might be on her way home. She might be, have done something else when she realized it. I'm not absolutely sure, but I think. Or, let's use it more fun, I believe Mississippi State's baseball team is going to be good this year. I actually have no idea. But when we say that, we're thinking, oh, I have hopes. I think they might be good. I don't know. Could turn out to be wrong. I just have no idea. Belief says something less than, uh, well, I'm not very sure is what it means to us. But in the Bible, faith and belief have three parts. There's a, a cognitive part. That is, there's something to believe. It is, in the Bible, when it says we want you to have faith, it's not faith in anything. Just believe. Just believe something. It's faith in some specific things. In particular, look what it says in verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly. You have to trust God, that he exists. You have to trust that he not only exists, but that he will make people righteous. And what kind of people? The ungodly people. Now at this point, here's what you should say. Hallelujah, I'm ungodly. I'm the kind of person that God justifies. I'm in the perfect condition. I'm needy. And I'm sinful? Great! That's the kind of person God justifies. You must believe that you are ungodly. You must believe that God exists. You must believe that He justifies. You must believe that He does it through Jesus Christ. Through His life and death and resurrection. Those are things that are true. And they're the content of our faith. It's what we, what we know. They're the facts. And that gets us to the second point, which is assent. If the first part is cognitive, here are the things to believe. Assent is to look at those things and say, I acknowledge them to be true. I believe God exists. I believe that Jesus is His Son and He is the Lord. I believe that He came, that He lived a righteous life, that He died on a cross unjustly for Him, but justly for me. That He spent time in the tomb, dead, and that he rose from the dead, I believe those things are true. Now, that's 
the cognitive part and the assent part of faith. If you get those two, you have qualified now to be a demon. That's what the book of James says. That even, even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know that God exists. And they know that Jesus lived righteously and that he died and that he rose again. To give assent to these things is only step two. To know that these facts, to believe they are true, and then to lean on them yourself. To trust them. It's like this. The demon can say, and the unbeliever even, can say, Jesus Christ died and rose again. The believer says this, Jesus Christ died and rose again for me. My righteousness was never going to satisfy God. My best works were never going to be enough. But Jesus gave me his righteousness. His good life was for me. And he took my sin, my sin, on the cross. He died for me. And he rose again for me. And I want you to hear how this sounds. He actually says it at the end of the chapter. If you'll flip over there. Verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It wasn't just God saving Abraham. He would save us the same way. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification I want you to pay careful attention to those verses. What is it that you're doing to get rid of your trespasses? Did you catch your role in that? Here's what you do. Get better, right? He was raised so that you would get a little better and then together we could work out our trespasses. Paul says, He was delivered up to the cross for our trespasses. He did that. It's already done. There's nothing left for you to pay for your trespasses. They're already paid for. It's a historical reality. And history can't be changed. You can't go back and tweak it a little bit. His payment for your trespasses can't be diminished and it can't be added to. You can't add to it. The church can't add to it. No one can add to it, and no one can take away from it. It's done. It is finished. Which is what Jesus said on the cross. And He was raised for your justification. He was raised from the tomb so that you could look at Him and say, God has accepted Him. And if He's accepted Him, He's accepted me. God has dealt with my sins through Jesus, and now that He's raised, Jesus is going to say, I paid for that one, He's mine. I paid for that when he's mine. I paid for that when he's mine. She's mine. He was raised so that you would know you were justified before God. You were right with him because of Jesus' sake. In other words, to say it another way, is that your righteousness before God is only as sure as Jesus being raised from the dead. You see, that happened. Jesus was raised from the dead. And so your justification is sure. It's a historical reality. It's happened. It's finished. Which is what Jesus said on the cross. It is settled 
It is done, and you didn't do any of it. And so you lean on it. You know the, the game where you fall backward into someone's hands? Fall back into Jesus' hands. He's already done everything to save you. He says, just trust me. To go back to my first illustration, let go of the tree. Trust him. He'll save you. Uh, Ken Davis is a guy who works with youth and does ministry. He wrote a book called How to Speak to Youth. And in it he was telling the, the story of when he was in college speech class. In college speech class, he had a lesson for the class and the, the teacher had wanted him to do something that would be persuasive. And so he had prepared a lesson really on gravity. He called it the law of the pendulum. And he attached the pendulum to the chalkboard. Or I, I guess it, this was old enough when they still had chalkboards. And he put a pendulum on there and he let it go. And, 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 and he marked where he'd started on the board. And when it came back, he marked where it was and it was lower. And then he marked where it was when it was lower. He said, because of gravity and friction, a pendulum can never swing back higher than it was when it started. It always gets lower and lower until it settles on the point at the bottom, the equilibrium point. And he made this case and he explained the physics behind it in his speech as well as demonstrated it. And when he had proven it, he felt, he had the professor come and stand on a platform. And in the center of the room was a 250-pound weight hanging from a, a big pendulum. And he brought it back up and he set it about a half an inch in front of the professor's face. He said, now, do you all believe in the law of the pendulum? It can't get higher than where it started. Professor, do you believe? He was a little trembly. He said, yes. And so he let it go. 250 pounds swung 20 feet across the room. And it began to come back and it was picking up speed. You know how it looks. And you're, the professor is staying there, and you know what the professor did, right? He dove under a desk. Only physics professors would stand there. The point, he asked, Ken Davis asked the class, did the professor really believe in the law of the pendulum? And to a man they shouted, no. Here's what I'm saying. Do you believe in the law of justification? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who justifies you? If you do, trust Him. Stop working to make God happy with you. Enjoy resting in what Christ has done. It is finished. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we pray that You would help us trust. It's so hard. I want to climb up on that limb and, and hang there and wait for someone else, something I can touch, something I can see. I want to do it myself and I want to make you in my debt. I feel those impulses, but they are uh, hallucinations. They're mirages and they're empty. Jesus has already done all that I need. Let me rest in Him. Help me to trust. Help us to have faith in Christ, His death, His resurrection that brings us peace with God. Peace with you forever and ever. Hallelujah. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond to God's Word by taking your hymnals and turning to hymn number... Uh,